episode three of the All About Sports, the podcast. Uh, thank you, everyone, for all the support that you guys have shown for episode one and two. And without wasting much time, I'll directly jump into episode three. Uh, Mazhar, Aniket, Rishab, and myself, Shubham, joining you. And so this podcast that we are covering is a topic that uh, I'm sure all of you guys are pretty irritated to even hear about. It's something that has totally transformed the year 2020, uh, and that is uh, COVID. And obviously, COVID has had a massive Im- impact, not just in our lives, but in, but in, uh, in sports. And uh, we will be covering about a few sports, how COVID has impacted it, uh, what, have, what have been the financial implications, how the leagues have restarted, um, and, and how different organizations and governing bodies have tried to tackle it. Uh, so yeah, to, to start off with, uh, I, would, I would like to talk about football. Uh, football is a, is a sport which I love a lot, and, and it is definitely the most viewed sport in the world. Um, and because all of us on this podcast are, are Premier League fans, and um, um, we, we all follow the Premier League a lot, uh, I, think, I think that's the best league to start off with. Uh, so obviously, like once, once COVID set in, uh, the league was suspended. Uh, no one really knew when the league will restart. There were a lot of ifs and buts about it. Some of the players were scared once the virus started to spread, especially in Europe and the UK, the way the virus spread. Yeah, it was alarming. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, discussions going on. Maybe the league won't even take place. The league will be cancelled. I, I, I really wish it would have been cancelled so that Liverpool wouldn't have won the title. But anyway, <laughs> that's a topic for another I'm, I'm on you in this uh, one. But yeah. <laughs> I'm with you on this one. Yeah. I'm with you on this one. Okay, so Aniket and I, by the way, guys, Aniket and I, when we were doing our last episode, the link will be below. We could not agree upon the first player, but I'm happy we can agree at least on this point. Uh, but anyway, so uh, there were there were a lot of talks going on if the league will happen it will be suspended the French league was suspended so there were talks that maybe Premier League will be suspended uh, but the Premier League is is like a cash cow it's perhaps the most important uh, league financially uh, across Europe so they had to restart the league and but but to restart the league there were a lot of protocols put into place a lot of guidelines almost like an SOP that was set by the a governing body by the NHS in the UK and and the government uh, so some of the things I will just like to in you guys about and run um, run you guys by it is for example um, every all the players and the administrators involved there were like 2700 plus there were three tests that were done uh, they were tested on a bi-weekly basis uh, any player positive was completely isolated uh, and also the players once the players were got back in to win the like obviously the players were scared so the players the, the training was also in phases so first phase was just small groups Second phase was to introduce contact training because obviously football is a contact sport. And third phase was to start training for match day. So like the entire squad training together. Uh, then certain rules that were set during match is players can't spit. They can't clear their nose. Uh, I think clearing their nose should be like an SOP made permanent because I think it's disgusting anyway. <laughs> yeah, those are some certain um, guidelines set in place. Uh, also, they, they, they started using technology, which I think is really cool. So when players... Uh, were coming to match days, uh, a, a barcode would be scanned and the barcode had to show that the player is negative. Only then the player would be allowed in the red zone. And the red zone was basically the pitch, the tunnel, the dressing room and, and areas um, around it. So that was something which was very interesting, using technology in order to try and uh, find a way around it. Uh, also, the medical staff attending players had to be in PPE kits. Um, and um, uh, what the Premier League did is because obviously when you're playing football, you want your fans to be there. Now, in order to give the players that sort of a vibe that fans are there, uh, they, they had like a huge speakers put in where they could like uh, recreate the noises of the crowds and the chants going on. Um, then some, some major changes that were done was the dressing rooms were expanded. Uh, three, uh, five substitutions were allowed instead of three. 
uh, the team bench was expanded so that players could maintain social distancing and so on and so forth. So, yeah, these were like some of the changes that the Premier League had to implement and because of which the league restarted and all of us were able to watch football again. Uh, but this is just like one sport uh, where, where a lot of protocols were set in place and, and luckily uh, the sport was revived and all of us could view the sport again. Um, likewise, there are, there are so many other sports that we will be talking about. Um, uh, like, for example, we can, like, the basketball and UFC. Uh, uh, basketball might not be viewed on the, on the scale of, uh, of football, but it's a major sport in the US and even in Europe, and heavy changes were implemented. And for that, I would like to bring in Mazar uh, to, to guide us through like, what happened with basketball and UFC and what changes took place. Thanks, Shabab. So, firstly, the NBA. As you mentioned, it's not as widely watched as football, but surprising fact is it is the second most widely watched sport in the world. So, fun fact out there. Uh, now, coming to basketball, we'll be covering the NBA. And, of course, it's the biggest league when it comes to basketball in the world, no doubt. It has the players like LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and you can go on and on. Now, the thing is, the NBA finals are on. So, everyone's really tuning in, especially in India. So, every morning, everyone's up and about. At 6.30 a.m., I see thousands of tweets coming in about how the Lakers are performing or the Miami Heat are doing to match up. Now, anyway, to get to how they handle COVID and how they managed to even reach this stage was truly amazing. So, they created a never-done-before bubble which in uh, Orlando, in Walt Disney World. Now, they, the point of making this bubble was to completely isolate all the players, the staff, and everyone who's involved in making the league work in this complete area to stay safe from the virus. And the NBA has always been very proud of the fact that they care about their players and how they do with health-wise, not only with the virus, even before that with injuries and stuff, we've always seen how they come out in support of their players. So, so the NBA spent $170 million as an investment uh, to launch, to create this bubble and to relaunch uh, NBA basketball after it was suspended mid-March. Now, the NBA was off for close to four months and planning had already started about how they'll kick off the league. So, they had a very comprehensive strategy under Commissioner Adam Silver where they implemented a six-phase strategy. So, phase one involved all the players flying into their home, or flying in or driving in as may be, to their respective home cities. So, they were then involved within their own bubble, within their teams itself. They weren't allowed to move out. Phase two involved all of them testing for the virus. Now, this was the first official or mandatory testing that was conducted by the NBA for the coronavirus. And 16 players are tested positive out of a total of 340-odd that are there in the league. Now, what is important is the first step when they took precautionary when they launched this bubble was that they made sure that all teams do not travel to the bubble. So, only the 22 out of the 30 teams that had a chance of making the playoffs were then brought in. And they followed a basic principle of, basically, if you were within six games of making a playoff spot, then you would travel. So, then they had, the NBA decided that they would play three practice games and then they would play eight games to decide their seedings. So, that was 
basic elements. So they already did not make anyone travel unnecessarily. Only those who had a chance to compete to travel for the playoffs. Now, phase after phase two, phase three involved mandatory individual uh, workouts for the players within their team facilities. Then they moved into the entire. So that that time there was full strict. There was a strict rule on group workouts being completely banned by the league itself. Then phase four involved them in actually flying or traveling by bus. And now even flying was private charters or to Orlando for moving into the bubble. And even after moving into the bubble, they had to basically go through a 24-hour uh, test, which they so they had to get two negative tests before being cleared to move around in the bubble. They had restrictions then imposed on player movements as well. They were put up in three different hotels, or these 22 teams, and they could not meet teams from the other hotels at all. So there was a huge strict restriction in terms of all of that as well. This was phase four. Then in phase five, they actually held the practice games with other teams from other hotels. And then they moved into phase six with which is still ongoing actually, which is their final uh, phase, which involves players who leave uh, the bubble after being eliminated have to mandatorily test for COVID-19. So this was the full comprehensive plan put in place by the NBA. Finally, of course, there were no fans involved. So they had set up a five-meter screen virtually courtside as well for all the games to just get that feel, which has added a bit of entertainment to the league as well with all the marquee names that pop up on <laughs> virtually. So that was the entire phase system that the NBA has followed. What's really interesting about the NBA though is once everyone moved into the bubble, no player tested positive. No one, none of the 340 odd players tested positive and that was running for how many ever weeks till day. So You've got to commend the job that they've done. And they've not only had restrictions in general, they've also allowed them to bring in individual trainers. So each team could bring in 35 people. So it didn't matter who. So like, let's say a LeBron James maybe had four or five personal trainers. So maybe he could have gotten three still. Uh, keeping in mind the other uh, team members and all of that as well. So that's a bit about how the NBA sort of coped with getting basketball started again. As for the UFC, well, it's crazy. It, if, you, if anyone follows the UFC, they know it never really stopped. So the, so the official statement by the government in the US came out somewhere in March. That's exactly around when the NBA was suspended as well. The UFC had events. So... The UFC cancelled three events only because of the coronavirus. They kicked off their first event after that in April in UFC 249 in Florida as well, in Jacksonville. Now, what's crazy about that event was one of the fighters tested positive, Jacare Souza. So, he, so his fight was cancelled. So, him and his trainer, I believe, two of them had tested positive. So, that fight was called off, but the event went on. The event went on and it was a success. Yes, no fans again, but it just took off. And they've had around, I don't even know the number, but it just seems to be non-stop now. 
they've uh, now they have another event coming up in a few weeks time and i think what is important to note for the ufc is that dana white the president of the ufc is actually very close to president donald trump so it just makes it easier for him now the ufc has moved out of the us because a lot of fighters themselves didn't feel comfortable so they've moved to abu dhabi on yas island um, and that's completely isolated anyway so uh, players seem very comfortable and the ufc is following all the basic precautionary measures that are required and in fact have even increased coronavirus testing for all of the athletes so testing masks social distancing mandated quarantine virus killing misting tunnels have also been set up by the ufc so they are taking it seriously they are everything is in place and if you watch the events you will notice the huge difference from the events before coronavirus and the events now apart from the fans being there the number of staff the way the commentators sit the the interviews even though they are ringside are conducted virtually now so everything is in place for the ufc many people said that it's impossible because it's a combat sport so there's more than contact there's literally blood on stage so uh, it was quite crazy and absurd you know in fact that was exactly what i was thinking that's exactly what i was thinking for a sport like ufc to go on it's actually crazy man because you're always in close yeah yeah it's so it's pretty crazy, crazy and what's even crazier is they've had a few cases those fights have been cancelled but the events have gone on and the other fighters have had no problem maybe it's a money thing because there's so much money that even these fighters make because of these fights a lot of these fighters literally live off just the ufc fight money so um, i think those are again things we can always have questions raised but so far so good for them so you got to also uh, commend Dana White on the job he's done so far, and the increased testing is sending a positive sign, saying that you know what, we are taking this seriously. It's not only for the money because ESPN had made him cancel events before, so he's definitely taken that into consideration, and we can get into the implications later. Yeah, so like like what I also understand from what Mazhar just mentioned. uh all these governing bodies of all these sports have been taking uh, serious measures in order to ensure like while the sport is going on the players are safe and and everything happens as smoothly as possible uh so that was on basketball and ufc and now moving on uh, to the sport which is perhaps the most viewed in india cricket uh, uh obviously with the ipl going on and and uh, all 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 us indians uh, glued to our screens watching the ipl uh rishab what do you have to say about cricket man Yeah, exactly like both of you all said. I mean, each I mean, and I've been so impressed as we read up more and more of like what the organization, like organizers, have done for these sporting events. Cricket's no exception. Um, so that there essentially um, three big tournaments that I want to talk about are three big organizers um, that we've kind of grouped together. And this is not in chronological order; it's just kind of in the order I'm going to go through them. Uh, the first is like you mentioned, Shubham, the Indian Premier League IPL. a uh, second is what i'm just describing is english cricket because england played a bunch of series um uh, during this coronavirus time so i'm going to call it english cricket uh, and the last one is cpl which is the caribbean premier league um i'll start off with ipl ipl i, I want to say from an organization standpoint made two big decisions the first one was to move out of india 
I think once the decision was made to move out of India due to the obvious unfortunate COVID situation in India, I think the decision to move to UAE was almost a no-brainer. I think UAE has become the unofficial uh, backup cricket location for everybody in South Asia. Um, the IPL was held there for a few games in 2014. Pakistan cricket has been playing there for a while since 2009. Um, so it was a pretty easy decision to move to UAE and they limited it to three locations, which is um, uh, Dubai, Sharjah and Abu Dhabi. Once that decision was made, the, the second call that needed to be um, made was how to actually contain people within UAE once they get in. And that's the same concept as the NBA, basically creating a term that I'm guessing we're going to keep hearing over this podcast, which is a bio-secure bubble, bio-bubble, bubble, some version of a bubble. Um, the concept is pretty similar. Anyone who comes in, be it player, training staff, family member, commentator, organizing official, gets tested and is isolated um, before they're able to enter the bubble. If the test is negative, um, it, it, they test three times. If the tests come back negative, they're able to enter the bubble. If they do test positive, they have to isolate for another 14-day period, test negative twice before they're allowed to enter. Um, once they're in, the bubble concept is, is again similar. Regular testing, five days. Um, you know, Every five days, they get tested. Um, they, they have to do a regular health checkup. Um, and then they're only allowed to go within areas of their hotels, training facilities that are defined as within the bubble. So it's, it's a pretty similar concept how they've defined bubble as, I'd say, the NBA and, and likely we'll see in other sports. What I do want to talk about, though, is the strict violation. Um, like when you do violate the protocol, what the repercussions are, because it's pretty, pretty stringent um, for, for every team and every player. So violating the bubble is defined in one of four ways by, um, by, by the IPL. So either if you leave the area that's defined as the bubble, um, if you don't complete your daily health report, if you don't wear your GPS um, wristband, and or if you miss a scheduled COVID-19 test. Um, it's pretty strict. So for players, there's basically a three-strike policy. Um, any, any games that you miss because of isolating due to a violation of these, you don't get paid for. So if you, if you violate any of these buzzle, bu bubble regulations the first time, it's a six-day quarantine, you get tested, um, and, and, and then for that six-day period, you're not paid. Second violation, again, you have to go into six days of isolation. And then after the isolation, you have a one-match ban as well. And then three times you mess up, that's it, you're home. Um, for, for family members and IPL officials, it, they obviously have, um, they have less tolerance for any, any, um, any violations. It's a two-strike policy, two mess-ups, and you're headed home. What's also interesting is for the teams, it's also really strict. Um, for each violation from a team perspective, there's a one crore fine. I think they, they're using a little bit of discretion, like how big was the, how big was the violation. Um, but it, for each, what is deemed as a serious violation, there'll be a one crore fine. Um, for the second violation onwards for the team, they could lose up to five points, which in the IPL is a lot because you get two points when you win a game. So if you lose five points, that's two and a half wins. And you only have 14 games totally. So um, very, very uh, strict regulations. And that's kind of how they're making sure that teams stick to it. Um, from an English cricket standpoint, which is the second set of organizing, uh, the second set of organizers for cricket, you know, I want to just start off by giving huge, huge kudos to the, to the English cricket board. Because 
they're the only real international cricket that's happened. And they've essentially continued with their summer pretty much sticking to their calendar. They pushed it back a little bit, like they had to push the West Indies series back a bit. But by and large, they've held a lot of the series that they intended to over the summer. They played three tests against West Indies, three ODIs against Ireland, three tests and three T20s against Pakistan, and then three T20s and three ODIs against Australia. So that's a lot of international cricket where really there hasn't been any. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the... They again similarly had a process for quarantining anyone who comes in. Uh, who comes in, they had to get tested. There was regular testing. They again created a, a, a bio-bubble of sorts. Um, the one thing, though, I think was unique was they limited games to basically two locations. Um, the Ages Bowl in Southampton and then Emirates Old Trafford in Manchester. And the logic for just those two locations was one, they just had more capacity in those locations to create a, um, a socially distance and COVID um, and COVID, like a, a, set, a, a setting in which to manage COVID. And number two is, what was really convenient, they just had hotels on site. So they didn't have to um, organize buses for transport in between where players are staying to where they need to play, which made it a lot easier and just not another consideration you need to uh, take into account for, um, for COVID testing. So all these, every single series that was played was basically limited to, to those two. From a rule change perspective, they had an interesting one where the number of DRS, so the number of times you could review for each team per innings was increased from two to three. And I saw this in an article. I don't know if this was the full logic. The article noted that the logic was because bowlers don't have the advantage of using saliva amid the coronavirus threat. So apparently because of that, they decided to up the number of reviews. It was an interesting one for me. Uh, but a lot of credit to English cricket. Um, and then last one was the Caribbean Premier League. Uh, that was actually before the IPL, but a little bit of a faster-paced tournament. Um, concepts are similar. They created a bio-bubble, limited to two locations, both in Trinidad and Tobago, because Trinidad and Tobago, just among the many countries that make up West Indies and the Caribbean, it just was doing a lot well from a COVID standpoint. Like At the time that it was held, I actually don't think they had... Um, like st- any like stay-at-home orders or anything like that. I think people were actually able to go out um, in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, so these were the three three big tournaments. Again, phenomenal job by all the organizers to to get it in shape and going. And I, I think this is kind of a no-brainer. But for all of them, it was held behind closed doors. Uh, no fans um, in 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 any of those cases. But yeah, gr- great job by the cricketing world as well. Fantastic job by the cricketing world as well, as I have to say. So that was basically cricket, and uh, obviously right now, right now the sport that everyone is talking about is uh, tennis. We have uh, Nadal versus Djokovic final coming up soon, so that's the sport that we will be covering now. And Aniket will be walking us through tennis and F1 and everything those guys have done uh, to to get their sports back and running. Yeah, I mean, tennis and F1 are both kind of road shows, right? Because you do move around from race to race or tournament to tournament. I'll just go through the two major tournaments in tennis. The first one was the US Open. Now, if the NBA is an example, I mean, US Open could also be one because they did so, so, so well in terms of creating a bubble for the players to the extent that there are two particular hotels where the players could stay. And not nowhere else and if you want to stay in a private home you need to pay for it all on your own there is no other way you can do it and 
the thing is these bubbles where the players were residing the so called two hotels there were tremendous amount of facilities for them to not get bored and to live a regular life which included uh, food trucks it included other games other recreational activities and what was more important i mean okay this is very secondary right how a player would go about his two weeks at the stand but what you really need to take into account is how well they did from a biosecurity perspective which is that these hotels weren't open to other um, regular customers or people wanting to stay there and that is where the us the us open kind of trumps the french open bubble now the reports about the french open bubble are kind of shoddy in the sense that other regular customers are allowed to stay in the bubble hotels and the only differentiator uh, for the us open and the french open bubbles barring this one is how close these hotels were to the main stadium the french open hotels being really close and the us open hotels were about 45 minutes to an hour away so how do how do how does the us open tackle that problem they introduced their own shuttle service so players who until last year could travel on their own with you know basically private traveling means now they have to use a shuttle service to go to and from the national tennis center um, and to and from the national tennis center and the hotel and of course one thing which did create a lot of controversy in the tennis world was that in case your entourage the players entourage basically anyone in the players entourage contracts the virus the player has to drop out from the tournament and this is one thing which did kind of have mixed opinions and reviews from players in the sense that a lot of players did complain that you know we would have traveled without an entourage had we known this because you do land up coming in contact with your coaches with your physios you could be sharing room with your family and what's to stop them from <laughs> contracting the virus in spite of all the precautions right also just more background as to how they introduced the players into the bubble is the us open required two mandatory negative tests in the last 10 days which are 48 hours apart before they did enter the bubble the french open did it slightly differently they tested the players once they entered the bubble but they were asked to quarantine until the negative test results were back and if not sorry you got to leave the tournament that's there's no other option right there which is that and that is one place which did create a lot of controversy amongst the players um, other than that of course masks are mandatory whenever you are not playing so if you could be traveling to and from the stadium you could be in the center but not playing on the in the court or you couldn't maybe if you are not even training this is the only two times when you are training and when you are playing an official match there are not they are allowed to not be wearing a mask and well the french open did have a very limited amount of fans the us open had none they were pretty pretty strict about that policy which is what kind of enabled them to hold say interviews where the players didn't have to wear a mask right where the interviews would take place outside stadiums just as promotional interviews and even the post match interviews were done remotely which means there is no media room where journalists are kind of crammed into a small space to ask players questions so again those 
I mean, that's kind of big thing, right? You know, for some reason, in terms of getting the promotional content out there, that the interviews are held without masks and the player's faces are visible completely. And that's to cover tennis. It's very basic. And since the NBA did set an example, the US Open followed brilliantly in terms of setting up a very good bio bubble. French Open has very mixed reviews. And now coming to Formula One, which is a mega, mega roadshow, right? You can't keep going. I mean, the NBA could be played on the same court for game after game. But the charm of Formula One is that you go across the world and race on different types of tracks in different kinds of weathers. And that means that you have to carry, well, 10 teams uh, across countries, which poses a very, um, very big challenge, so to speak, because the teams aren't small. It's not a play, it's not a racer and his entourage. It's a pit crew with engineers, with the racers, of course, and multiple people who work behind the scene. Also, the media crew has to travel with them. And supposedly now even Netflix does. So, <laughs> so that's how it is for them. But let's now understand how they ensure that most of the people involved remain virus-free. So one thing which is mandatory is to receive a negative test report before you before you begin your travel to the next venue. And once in once in the you are in the travel phase, you get tested once every five days. So those were the basic checkings, uh, which were checks which were kind of done to ensure that no one who is coronavirus positive walks into this secure space where you want to hold a race. Also some very small tweaks and changes uh, which are actually kind of don't get highlighted enough is that a lot of people are on the grid right before the race begins covering the tires heating up the tires what they do a dozen of things right it's not just the racer and his car you have to prime up the car before the race begins and what they did is they imposed a maximum personnel uh, limit which was 40 per team and once the three minute call sounds which is when the okay, the race so to speak is to begin in three minutes then they introduced a 16 person limit per competitor so it is it's a conscious attempt to reduce the number of people on the grid and of course masks are mandatory for everyone barring the racers when they were racing to the extent that once the racers are out you have to put your mask back on and uh, even the podiums are celebrated with masks on and one thing which is a big big miss for fans and drivers alike is the race day parade where you know people are gathered uh, people sorry the racers are gathered on a minibus and they do the uh, circuit but since there are no fans it kind of takes the charm away i mean who are you parading for <laughs> you go to parade to empty stands uh, doesn't make much sense right and these are kind of the rule changes uh, not rule changes kind of guidelines you could say uh, with respect to formula one and uh, that's about it. They have. Um, let me think. Okay, sorry, I missed one point. So the media rules and the media briefings. So, for those who don't know, Formula One has race day briefings for drivers and also, of course, 
you have a ton of interviews right to do for not just promotion but talk on the race to basically a lot of things so these were either held in isolation or the briefings were held in a very large room where people could where the racers could sit um, in a socially distant manner or the guidelines specified that it could be held outside even in case a large enough room was not organized or through teleconferencing which is kind of become the norm for a lot of things right now so yeah i mean that that's pretty um, exhausted from them because but let's be honest they were always wearing helmets gloves the pit crew um, okay the celebration is uh, celebration of overtakes etc kind of raises question because they're so huddled up and then people are high five shouting yelling uh, you know chest bumps and god knows what not so they're not socially distant but yeah there is reduced contact for well as one pit crew and the racers of course they never had any contact So, I mean that does cover it from a tennis and Formula One perspective. Like, like I can see, like from what all of us have spoken, there are a lot of similarities in terms of the regular testing and the masks and maintaining social distancing. Uh, but, but like the main purpose to all our viewers for us covering all these different sports was was for us to try and understand that while all of us are sitting and watching all these sports on our whatever OTT platforms and TV screens and stuff like that. all these governing bodies have actually put in a lot of effort to ensure the safety of players uh, and also to revive these sports again and another thing that we need to understand is, is is at least this is something which i find very interesting which has also been a little controversial is is the issue that some players and certain like ex uh, players or pundits or whatever they have raised is health versus money because all these sports like let it be the nba the premier league the f1 tennis ipl cricket bcci all of these massive gov- governing bodies and they get in a lot of money and this sort of money not only adds to the tax that the country earns or the gdp but also it's associated to a lot of uh, jobs so a lot of people have said that the reason these sports have started is because of the financial pull that they have and perhaps if, if it was from a health perspective it shouldn't have happened because like for example in, in football uh, there was a lot of pressure put on the nhs that uh, maybe the sport should start and so on and so forth um so like i would like to now open this up and i would like all of you all to uh, let us uh, let all our viewers know about the sort of financial implications that have happened and uh, starting up these sports and reviving these sports other than from the entertainment perspective because it's been such a gloomy year so getting sports revived is important for the fans and uh, all of us to just enjoy but especially the financial implications that have uh, that the sports have had to suffer and the reason for them to restart again so like for example like just a few numbers like in like in football um the premier league brings brings the uk around 3.3 billion dollars in tax and uh, it contributes to like 7.6 billion dollars in the gdp of the uk that's massive right so i can and and also there are um, close to 100000 jobs associated to in and around football so that, so i can totally understand as to why you have to revive the sport because a lot of people depend on the sport like forget the players they make the big money but like the other people who are associated their jobs and stuff like that so it really matters a lot uh but some 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 things i'd really like to highlight and i think it's really cool uh, is is the premier league they did uh, talk to all the different clubs and they were like you can consult the players to take a 30% pay cut and so on and so forth and some clubs have implemented it certain players they took it like for example i know arsenal did put a 12.5% pay cut on the players uh, uh and and a lot of players were gracious enough to step forward and also like take their pay cuts to uh, to support certain jobs um other things that happened is um 
overall, but 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 still look at the financial implication. Overall, it is said that the Premier League is about to lose one billion pounds, out of which five hundred million will go just from broadcasting and match day revenue, and another five hundred million from from different uh, sources of revenue. So it's still a massive hit that the Premier League has taken. Uh, for example, clubs like United and Liverpool, where we basically have a sellout stadium most of the time, unlike uh, Man City or Tottenham, uh, we at least do have a sellout stadium. But we are still losing around three to five million pounds every match day because fans are not coming in. So, uh, <laughs> so obviously we are taking a hit, and uh, and and right now also the Premier League has started, but still fans aren't coming to the stadiums. Uh, this has also had a. It, it's almost like a domino effect in the transfer market because uh, other than Chelsea, because well, other than oil money and and Chelsea's money, uh, not a lot of clubs have been able to spend a lot because again of financial implications. Uh, so there has been this domino effect. Sports are being affected. This was at least the case with with football. Um, uh, and 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 the UEFA have been have been very nice in order to extend financial fair play rule. So what this basically means is. A financial fair play was uh, was was always analyzed over uh, a period of three years, but this time we've decided to stretch it over four years uh, because of the coronavirus that's happened. Uh, so while the governing bodies are supporting, it's it's no doubt that sports are losing a lot of money, and this was the case with football. And I would like you guys also to um, uh, talk about your respective sports. Yeah, I I think actually going off what you said, you know, for the EPL, I, you know, I don't think it's any secret. I I know it's definitely true for the for the U.S. government, and I I know it's I think true as well even for England, where even the broader like parliamentary and governmental forces are pushing sports to restart because, as you said, it is this huge business that it's just a source of employment and um, just an economic injection in, in into your country when it when it restarts. Um, so from a you know, so so going off that, talking from from the English Premier League to English cricket, you know, a big part for them restarting was, um, was a, well, they did need to a go through Parliament and kind of they they put up um uh, like a a six stage plan for both uh, international cricket as well as even like casual uh casual cricket that's played recreational cricket uh, on how they can actually start it up and providing um, domestic support to teams. So basically, basically, gully cricket, yeah, fancy gully cricket. <laughs> Um, so, easy, so, but again, like you said, it was really important to restart because of um, the the employment opportunity, not the the employment um, that it provides. But unfortunately, like you said, there have been a lot of losses. Like for ECB, for example, they recently they're not a huge uh, board necessarily, but they themselves have cut 62, 62 jobs, and they're projecting about a two hundred million pound loss from the COVID nineteen pandemic. I'm not exactly sure how much that is in terms of how much they were previously earning, but it's still a significant um, loss for them. Um, like you mentioned, Shubham, the main losses for them are reduced broadcast and sponsorship revenue. A big one for the English cricket was losing the 100 this year. So the 100 was a tournament that they were trying to, to um, put out, which is basically, um, which, was, which was county cricket for them, but um, 100 balls basically. So it was going to be a big... Uh, domestic cricket tournament that they were trying to put out. They've pushed it now to 2021, but it's 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 a big loss of uh, revenue for them. And I think one thing to keep in mind when we talk about these bubbles, um, and I think we, we like you all brought it up uh, a few times, is while it is really incredible what these organize, uh, organizers have done, it comes at a price. It is really expensive to put up events like these. Um, doing it in this biosecure way. It's not an easy 
Uh, it's not an easy task and it's not a cheap task. Um, so that's the second reason why ECB said that they're projecting these kind of losses and they're expecting it to go into um, 2021 as well. What I will say is it's, it, what's really cool and what they've done is, so the ECB basically announced two interim funding packages with about 96.7 million pounds to support recreational and first-class cricket, which is really cool because those are the, the groups that probably don't get as much in sponsorships anyway, right? They don't have the huge names that international those those are generally the ones which would die down without the support yeah exactly so so really impressive work and um and 25.5 million is just set aside for recreational cricket which is um which was really impressive um from an ipl standpoint again similar concept you know a lot less money from sponsorships but ipl themselves also kind of made the decision to say in order to be involved with us from a sponsorship perspective, the price to be involved is slightly lower. So IPL as well, the organizers from their standpoint also reduced the price because they still wanted sponsorship. Um, you probably notice Vivo is no longer the IPL title sponsor. Uh, fa- fa- this fantasy sports company, Dream11, replaced them um, at 222 crores, which is about 50% of what BCCI earned last right. year. Yeah, so significant drop in their title sponsor uh, sponsorship money. Um, and then a few teams as well lost like their, their sponsors because of the I, A, because IPL was moved out of India and B, just IPL was, um, IPL was pushed out. Uh, but yeah, obviously it's taken an economic, a big economic hit for these sports to run. They're earning much less than they did, but um, I guess something better than, than nothing. So uh, Krishnan, I'm glad you brought up uh, all of these points because these numbers and even Shobham, you mentioned 1 billion pounds for the Premier League. It's pretty much the same for the NBA. So the NBA was due to, so they basically had $1 billion of revenue at stake if they did not finish the league. So that's a lot of money. Uh, now they spend 170 million to set it up. So like Krishnan said, it's, it doesn't come cheap to even set up these bubbles and to get sports running again. But, so, like I said, $1 billion in revenue at stake for the league and also $600 million at stake for, for the players in terms of their salaries. Now, that is huge money. So, there was no way that the NBA wasn't going to move forward. So, let's just face the facts there. Now, it's had impacts on every single team. Now, if you see the NBA franchises are all privately owned or not uh, majorly privately owned by single owners in a lot of cases like the Dallas Mavericks with Mark Cuban being the biggest stakeholder. So, so a lot of these teams have had to take on loans in order to meet their expenses with regards to their basketball teams. So the Golden State Warriors are now looking to take $250 million to cover their expenses from Goldman Sachs. Uh, jo- uh, Joseph Sai, who owns the Brooklyn Nets, he sold 25% of his stake from Alibaba in order to deal with expenses for the Brooklyn Nets. So these are just a couple of examples. All teams are now the NBA has a limit of how much can be borrowed uh, by owners from their franchises out of their equity stake, which is around $325 million. So most of the teams this year have already uh, met that limit. So now cannot 
take on more borrowing. So it'll be interesting to see what happens going into the next year. So I think from the NBA standpoint, yes, they needed this money, especially the teams needed this money because they've already taken on these loans for meeting basic expenses that they would have generally have cracked with uh, sales of tickets in uh, for courts. And let's not forget, basketball tickets are probably one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive tickets in world sport. So, especially like courts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that's a bit from the NBA. From the UFC, well, they, there's no sort of clarity on how much they have lost. Of course, we all know the amount of money they make. Again, boxing is probably a sport which makes even more money than uh, basketball does. It definitely does rather. But uh, the UFC also makes a lot of money for their marquee fights. So they've lost out on a lot of revenue from that standpoint. But uh, the, the major setback for the UFC is their parent company, Endeavor has a huge debt on its head and Endeavor, in fact, acquired a huge stake in the UFC worth $4 billion or something. So that's where it stands right now. Aniket, you can... Yeah, I, I, I mean, as staggering as these numbers are, you got to admit that <laughs> there was no other way out, right? You got to shell out for sports to continue. And I mean, that's, and Krishna covered it really well. All sports will lose out on two major so streams of revenue. One is sponsorship and the other being broadcast revenue. But what the uh, Formula One governing body does lose out on is also the fees which the track organizers have to pay them for their track to be on the F1 calendar. That is something which, uh, I mean, you got to understand since the track organizers are going to make less money uh, by hosting a race event, they're going to pay less amount. They're going to pay a lower amount uh, to you know have their race on their fun calendar. Now, not too many specifics on how much money FI loses, but there are some good numbers in terms of tennis and the US Open's revenue was down 80%. It was down 80% because there were no fans. And last year, the US Open made approximately $400 million. Which is, let's face it, for a two-week event, absurd amount of money, right? And okay, what effect does this have? It's going to go straight down to the player's prize money, right? Oh, so right. Okay. The, the, the player's prize money in the US Open went down by 850 thousand dollars they went from 3.85 million to 3 million which i mean think about that's almost one fourth of what we were earned. i mean what you would have earned and uh, the only place where there was an increase in terms of uh, how much money you would make as a player would be if you played the first round matches in both events <laughs> that's it <laughs> in both events being uh, event uh, the first round in the 2019 and 2020 us open the only place where you would actually um, have a financial gain, so to speak, or an improvement in your match fees. And the French Open also likewise uh, 
price money dropped from 2.3 million to 1.6 million euros. Just, I mean, to be fair, every there's only one winner. <laughs> of course, uh, slam is won by just one person. But think about the dedication which you put in to win a slam in the men's category. If you reach a final and that and your name is not Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal, <laughs> you're already, you've already made it, right? So basically, the French Open for Nadal is fixed income. <laughs> <laughs> okay, think about it. He's lost to Schwartzman in the Italian Open, right? Two sets. French Open beats him. Three straight sets. In straight sets, he beats Diego Schwartzman in a semi-final. That's how good he is. So I don't think Mazar's making a joke when he says it's fixed income for Nadal. Yeah, has become. His record is 99-2 yeah, oh, 90, in the French yeah. Open. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see if he makes it 100 against Djokovic. We, everyone will know before this podcast is officially out. So, let's just keep it out there. I, mean, I think that was it in terms of the financial impact COVID-19 has had on various sports. Uh, but all in all, I think from the conversation that we've had, it's, it's quite clear that all the leagues and all the organizations, they have done a pretty good job to start things up again. Uh, um, and, and from every aspect, let, let it be like obviously financially also they have to get the ball rolling again. From the viewership, from entertainment, I think all of them have done, have done a pretty good job in, in starting um, sports again amidst the pandemic that we are facing. Except and, for uh, one sport, Shubh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Except for one sport, the MLB. Uh, sorry, <laughs> baseball fans. That was just terrible. I'll just yes, leave it that. Because you can fight, right? There is a guideline which says no fighting, but we will because why not? <laughs> we are rowdy and we love it. Okay, so I think we'll probably make like a short clip of covering the MLB with um, with Mazar giving his thoughts about it. Uh, but but yeah, all in all, uh, so the main main idea of this of this uh, episode of this podcast was um, while all of us are watching these sports, we might not have the amount of information and. Or, or the know-how as to what's been going behind the scenes and, and um, how all these sports have started up. Uh, so from this podcast was uh, was one which was uh, more on the informative side of things. Uh, so yeah, we hope that all of you guys have liked it. Links to podcast one and two will be in the description below. Uh, like, share, subscribe, uh, comment. Uh, all our social media pages uh, description will be down below. And uh, thanks for tuning in and we will see you guys again with another episode. Uh, next week and if you guys want us to cover any specific sport talk about a certain topic let us know again in the comments below see you guys thanks guys see you thanks everyone take care